0: Oh, good, morning. good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. I'd like to pose a question to all of you today. What would you say, and who would you talk to if you knew you were going to die the next day? Now, it's not too often that I see this kind of person, but there are times at the hospital when I'm asked to see the terminally ill patient. There might be someone who had a newly diagnosed brain tumor. They know they have six months to live, and I get called in to instruct the family how to best take care of the person, how to make sure this family member doesn't have a fall at home. A lot of times when I see these kind of people at the hospital, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of pity, a lot of sorrow, a lot of grief for themselves. What we're going to look at today, though, is totally different. There came a time when the Apostle Peter knew he was going to die. He would end up being executed for his testimony for the Lord. We don't know how long it was between the time that Peter wrote the second epistle and the time of his execution. Maybe it was a few months. Maybe it was a few weeks. Maybe it was just a few days. He knew he did not have a whole lot of time left. We see Peter here, though. All he can think about is, is not himself. He's thinking for the spiritual well-being of the believers. If you look back at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 21, Jesus, Jesus gave Peter several commands. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And we know from 1 Peter that Simon Peter was an elder. He spent a lot of his lifetime doing as the Lord commanded him. Now he's going to use his last words here to to do what he can to fulfill the commands that the Lord gave him. And when it comes to his own death, he's very matter-of-fact about it. In fact, he only mentions it in two sentences. All he can really think about is the welfare of the believers he knows and the believers to come. Let's look at verses 13 to 14 of chapter 1. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Lastly, verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter begins his letter by reminding the believers of just how much they've been given as believers. In verses two to four, "Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Really, you could just say, he's given us all things. Now, life in this verse is referring to a lot more than just food and clothing, the abundant life is one of knowing the Lord intimately, witnessing for the Lord, having a life filled with prayer, having close fellowship with the saints. And he's given us all things that pertain to godliness, having a godly character. We've been given an amazing privilege when Peter states here that you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now before you are saved, All you had was a sin nature. And because that was your nature, what naturally came out of your life was sin. But now as a believer, you have the opportunity to be a partaker of the divine nature, a partaker of God's nature. And and one way that's manifested in your life is in a godly character. Do you want to know what the secret is to having a healthy, fruitful, spiritual life? Do you want to have that kind of life where you're always in fellowship with the Lord, never stumbling into sin? That kind of life where, when it's all over, you'll have no regrets. and The Lord will welcome you into heaven with a well-done, thou good and faithful servant. That's right here. Verses 5 to 7. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. We need to be living by faith, taking God as word, living based on the word of God and not what the world is showing us. We need to have virtue, a life of good moral character. We need to add knowledge. And what's knowledge here? Knowledge isn't adding random facts to your brain or adding little-known bits of information from an encyclopedia to your memory. Knowledge here is growing in your knowledge of God, getting to know God better and better, getting closer and closer to him, self-control, or really control of self. It can be really hard to discipline yourself. I know I've shared with a number of you here, for the past year I've been on a mission to lower my cholesterol. It's led to me taking some dietary, take some real restrictions on my diet. And there's some months that's been really hard. I see a brother or sister eating some French fries or onion rings, and I just long for one of them. But it can be even harder to practice self-discipline in the things the Lord has given us. Like after a long workday, a lot of the times all we feel like doing is just vegging in the front of the TV for the rest of the evening or just surfing the internet. But wouldn't the time be spent a lot more productively? If we spent a little time in prayer, some time studying the Word, It really takes self-discipline to steel yourself to pursue the things of God. Perseverance. This is pressing on when the going gets tough, following the Lord even when there's a lot of opposition. Godliness, or as Bill would put, it, Godlikeness, imitating God in His character. Brotherly kindness, acts of affection the brethren you know all of us believers here we're part of one family in fact we're going to be family forever we should be kind to one another and lastly love this goes beyond just showing kindness to the brethren we need to love all the unbelievers out there too in our lives and the result is beautiful beautiful your life as a natural result will be fruitful. Verse eight, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And going on to verses 10 to 11, we read, therefore brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, this is not one of those quick fix solutions. If you're looking to have this kind of life, you can't expect it to happen overnight. One thing I get asked by patients once in a while is what I think of certain quick-fix exercise programs. How to build muscle and lose weight in two weeks. How to get perfect abs in 10 minutes. (laughs) How to build muscle just by taking a pill. One of the odder ones that came by uh, one of my coworkers was just standing on a vibrating platform for a few minutes a day. I'm sorry, but there's no quick solution to living a fruitful spiritual life. There's no such thing as ten minutes to godliness. The life that Peter writes about here, takes a lot of time and effort. Years. All those things mentioned in verses five to seven, they take a lot of time to cultivate. You don't persevere at something for just two minutes. Or... We don't don't show self-control for just half an hour. Perseverance implies endurance through hardship. Self-control, I mean, we have to exhibit self-control all our lives, really. And There's often not a convenient time to show brotherly kindness and love. Oftentimes, those are best shown at the times when it's not convenient for us, when it's going to cost us something. And verse 5, Peter urges us to pursue these things, giving all diligence. Twice, actually, he calls us to diligence. We need to be eager and zealous and earnest in adding these things to our lives. It's probably because I spent so much time in school, but when I think of the word diligent, I immediately connect it with a student lifestyle. I picture the diligent student just spending hours and hours after midnight studying hard so he can do well in school. Verse 12. Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, but you know them, are established in the present truth. We know from this verse that Peter has written about these things before. He's repeating himself here. But that's good. I don't know about the rest of you, but I tend to be a slow learner. I need a lot of repetition. I need a lot of reminder. And we need reminder. A lot of times, just at the end of a long work day, I need a reminder of these things from the Lord. We can be amazingly forgetful. It's possible for us to forget just how much we were saved from. And for this reason, also, Peter must remind them, all the believers he's, he's talking to, that their faith is based on something real. Over 30 years have passed since the Lord Jesus had ascended to heaven, really not that long a time, but it's amazing what can get forgotten in just a period of years. There are some people nowadays that, say that, that believe that the Holocaust never happened. That was a fiction. In a recent newspaper survey in Britain, they found that just about one in five British people think that Winston Churchill was a myth. And, you know, there were probably people in Peter's time, they were probably saying that the Lord Jesus was a myth, that he wasn't who he claimed to be, that the things he did didn't actually happen. Verses 16 to 17, we read, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What Peter is saying here is your, your faith is based on a real person. The things he did truly happened. I saw him with my own eyes. That's not just that. but Your faith is based on the word of God. Your Bible is not just some collection of writings that someone decided to make up one day. Peter next turns to the subject of false teachers, people who are teaching some form of twisted doctrine. Now, one of the jobs of the shepherd is to protect the flock from wolves. I'm sure Peter had done his share of defending the church against these wolves in sheep's clothing. But now the time was coming where he would not personally be able to do the defending by himself. He was going away. So he does everything in his power to warn the believers, of these false teachers who are coming. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with empty words. For a long time, their their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. There's a lot of false teachers out there who use the name of Christ. There are many destructive ways, as mentioned in verse 2. Roman Catholicism, Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. Those are just some of the more well known ones. We're not going to go into the details of their false doctrines. A lot of them can basically be summed up in a few simple words. You need Jesus, and you need this and that. They bring in their false teaching secretly. You don't see these false teachers coming in with a blast of a trumpet saying, I'm going to destroy your church. or I'm going to bring in some new doctrine that you know nothing about. No, they're a lot more subtle. They might appear to be Christians. They might seem like nice people. They might be well-mannered and well-dressed. They know their Bible. They might even wear a big cross around their necks. There's something incredibly horrifying about the people spoken of in chapter 2. They're as monstrous as people can be. In verse 3 we read, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. These false teachers really have one one aim in mind. The exploitation of other people. These false teachers are the kind of people that destroy churches, they destroy the lives of young, untapped believers, and they destroy the lives of many unbelievers. In verse 2 we read, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. I don't think we can really estimate just how much damage has been done by, by false teaching. I can tell you from my own family experience, I had a cousin who, during his college years, he got sucked into one of these cults that claimed to be a church. Now a year in that cult led to him dropping out of school and ruining his life in various ways. Now, thankfully, he escaped from it, but the damage was really already done. I don't know how he is nowadays, but when I saw him after he left that cult, at that time. There was no way he could tell him about his need for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way he could share the gospel with them. And it's sad, the name of the Lord Jesus, that's the name that Peter long ago said when he was facing the Sanhedrin. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now someone like my cousin, he always has a, has a bad association with that name whenever he hears it. And, you know, some, something like that, that kind of damage has a ripple effect. So I can tell you, when I, when I and my family heard about what happened to my cousin, that made me a lot more hardened toward the name of Christ. It made it harder for me to get saved. And, of course, their ways are destructive in the sense that they also destroy themselves first. Did you know there are people that absolutely cannot be saved? These false teachers are beyond salvation. They're not saved. Verse 15 we read, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Notice, they've forsaken the right way. They know the right way. These people have heard the gospel and understand it. But instead of coming to the Lord on their knees and asking to be saved, these people see the Word of God as something they can use. Something they can use to exploit and, and control people with. And really, they're using the Word of God to lead people to hell. When we think of an atrocity committed in the last century, a common period of history we turn to is the Holocaust. 6 billion Jews and millions of other people led to their deaths in concentration camps. But you know, people are being led to hell, to eternal death on a much bigger scale. For instance, the Catholic Church today is estimated to have about 1.1 billion members. That's a lot of people being led by a false doctrine. And that's that's not the half of it. Because think about it, the Catholic Church has been around a long time. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. We can't even begin to quantify how many people have been led by this false doctrine over the centuries. And that's just one of a lot of churches teaching false doctrine out there. Verse 18 we read... For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through licentiousness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. People come to these false teachers because they seem to offer great things. A false teacher might say, give your mind to God, or really, give your mind to me. And God will make you rich, he'll make you wealthy, he'll give you more money. Now, doesn't that sound like a good deal? Don't you all want to be rich? And you know, that's just peanuts compared to what some of those false teachers offer out there. You know, why stop at just offering material wealth? In the Mormon church, it's even taught that you can become a god ruling over your own kingdom. Now, wouldn't you like to be that powerful? But there's really, there's nothing to these words of theirs. There's nothing to these promises. Their teachings are not based on Scripture. And when they do use Scripture, they take it totally out of context. Or they just change the words in the Bible to support whatever false doctrine they're trying to push across. Peter Lair refers to these false teachers as those who are untaught and unstable, who twist Scripture to their own destruction great swelling words of emptiness. I thank the, Lord, thank the Lord we've had good elders in this assembly. Let me ask you, do you pray for your elders? You know, I'll be first to confess, I know I don't pray for them enough. And the elders could certainly use our prayer. There's some serious spiritual warfare going on as these kind of people The elders protect the rest of the saints from. Peter then turns his attention in chapter 3 to another group of people whom he refers to as scoffers. Verse 1 Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. People make fun of the believer who talks about coming day of judgment. One might wonder, When is the Lord coming back to judge the earth? With all the scoffing, it might be really easy for a believer to become discouraged. When is the Lord coming back? When is justice going to be served on the earth? What's the Lord waiting for? Why doesn't he judge the earth right now? We have the answer in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord hasn't returned yet because he's waiting for that last soul to be saved. The Lord truly is long-suffering with us. If the Lord were not long-suffering, there's no one that would be saved. I can tell you from my own life and my own sins, I know the Lord would have been perfectly just in sending me to hell and judging me a long time ago. Charlie, last week, in speaking of 1 Peter, he pointed out how believers are really sojourners and pilgrims. This world is not our home. We're really just passing through it on the way to heaven. And because of that, we shouldn't try to get too comfortable here. In the second letter, Peter gives another very good reason why believers should not get too comfortable in the world. Everything we see around us, the world as we know it, is all going to be gone in the day when the Lord comes back to judge the earth. It's all going to be burned up. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire? and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Some questions to ask ourselves. What are you investing your time and energy in? What are you looking forward to? It really makes no sense for us to attempt to settle down here and stay on the earth for the long term. It's not just that all of us are in the world as temporary residents. The world itself is temporary. What comes down to it, the only things that are worthwhile investments are things done for the Lord. The only logical thing for us to do is to devote ourselves fully to knowing Him and doing His will. In Peter's closing remarks, he's still so concerned about the false teachers attacking the believers that he warns them again starting verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. If we look at the huge population of the world that claims to be Christian, we can see that most of it has been led away by the false teachers. Most of the world that claims to be Christian out there, they're not saved. But The church has continued on. If you're here today as a believer in the Lord, you're here because the Lord used others before you who were steadfast to him and clung to true doctrine. And passed it on. And if there's going to be a next generation of believers, we need to be doing the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, and thank you for how much you love us. Do pray, Father, you would empower us to live lives devoted to you. Lord, help us be steadfast to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.